We gather on this Lord's Day as the family of God. We gather as a community of born-again believers in the substitutionary death and the glorious resurrection of the reigning Christ. Though once enslaved to sin and spiritually blind, we gather to sing songs of redemption and light. Jesus has paid the penalty of our sin. He has saved us from God's wrath. By His grace, He has given us spiritual life, and He has bequeathed to us an inheritance in heaven. And so we gather as the family of God on this Lord's day to sing. We gather to rejoice and we gather to worship. If you have not been born again, if you do not know how you could give evidence that you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, then I call you here at the beginning of this sermon to come to Him, to look to Jesus and live But if you have been saved, you realize that your salvation is of utmost importance. You realize what a treasure it is that you are God's child, that your sins have been forgiven. You realize how important it is that you have been rescued from the penalty and the power of sin. You know this. This is not news. This is something in which we rejoice, yet with all that we know about our salvation, our worship falls short of what Jesus deserves. Our hearts do not fill with the gratitude and the zeal and the hope that we know we should have. Where joy should well up in our hearts, dullness and insensitivity and a lackluster spirit are all too prevailing. We could say much about the inoculating effects of materialism and sensuality, amusement, and all manner of idolatries in our culture. But I offer here today that one of the most important stimulants to our appreciation of salvation is a growing knowledge of salvation history. To look back into the past and to clearly see what God has done. I might be able to illustrate this a bit for you. Consider a young girl. She's a Jewish girl in heritage, growing up in Brooklyn, New York in the early 1950s. She has learned from her earliest days of memory that she was taken down to an agency down the street and adopted by her parents. They were not her birth parents. These are her adoptive parents, and she very much appreciates them. And little by little, they begin to tell her the story. But with all of her appreciation, nothing really sticks all that well until her 12th birthday when her parents take her to Europe. And they take her to Auschwitz. And they show her a train track and tell her a story that she can't believe that she was on one of those trains headed to Auschwitz and would have been exterminated along with her parents. Were it not for her adoptive mother and father, who through a long series of events stole her out of that train, smuggled her out of Germany, and went to France.
And as it all begins to hit her, the tears run down her cheeks. As she says, thank you. The vacation continues and they go to France. And they go to that section across from England in Normandy. And they stand at a graveyard and they show her acre after acre after acre of crosses and stars of people who have died to free France from Nazi control. And they tell her, when we brought you here to France, the Nazis had taken over. We were here for a lengthy period of time and we were afraid that we would not get out. But then there was that great invasion from the Allied forces and they came here and many, many people laid down their lives to free France. And we stayed until that day and as soon as we could, we made our way here to America. And this 12-year-old girl stands among all these graves and she looks at these two people who had risked their lives for her. And again, the tears flow. And she says, thank you. The fuller picture of the history of her rescue deepens her appreciation of her parents and of her adoption. She goes back to Brooklyn, New York, and she's never the same again. Because she never sees herself in any other way but from this deep history, this grand story of rescue. I think in like manner, sometimes we as Christians are like that younger girl who know of our adoption by God, but we really don't know the details. We really don't know the history that is behind it. We don't know the fullness of the story and because we don't know the fullness of the story, we become dull to the message. We know that Jesus laid down his life. We know that he rose from the dead. That's all the more we consider. And believe me, that's all we need to consider in the greatest sense of the term. But coming to understand what God has done through the centuries can deepen and enrich the appreciation that we have for our adoption a deeper appreciation of our salvation, a more fervent worship of Christ is not gained by mystical experiences. Many are purporting this today. You're going to be reading about it if you haven't already. The idea for them is we need to stop and to meditate and concentrate and put ourselves in the place of the cross. Stand there right at its foot and look up into the eyes of the crucified Jesus and seek to smell the sweat and the blood and watch it as it flows down his body. And come into that moment and strive to experience that moment. And the point is to do this over and over and over again through our lives. One of the problems, I think, with all of that is we don't really know if we've got the right picture. We have quite a bit from Scripture, but there's an awful lot that we don't see. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us imagining Christ dying but we do not find commended to us in Scripture the way of sanctification is to get ourselves into these events and to seek mystical union with that crucified and risen Christ. 
What the Bible does is it leads us back to look at salvation history. And it says, consider and know and fill up your heart with the richness and the glory of God's saving plan from the very beginning of time. Continue to think on the whole story and it will bring fuller and fuller light to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection mean more and more to us as we step back and as we look into the work of God through salvation history. Our investment in this very project will begin to take place, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. In the next three weeks, I'd like to offer a few preparatory sermons for an extended series of sermons in the book of Exodus. We need to gather together here, I think, and to get some momentum into that series by remembering what we find in the book of Genesis. And so in the next couple of weeks, I'd like to unite us in that approach to Exodus and all of this understanding, if you'll work with me from the very beginning, to know that all of it is there to build our knowledge of the salvation that God has provided, to gain a fuller sense of the big picture, and thereby in His sanctifying grace to come closer and closer to Him and to see more and more the glories of our salvation. It will be a great journey, a long journey perhaps, through Exodus. But as we come to that book, we must first remember the book of Genesis. And we start there today in Genesis chapter 12, a section we've looked at in our work through Genesis. It's, believe it or not, for some it doesn't seem that long, but some seven years ago that we worked through Genesis chapter 12. But many were not with us at that time, and all of us need to be constantly reminded of these truths. And so in Genesis 12, we find a vital root out of which the saving work of Christ grows. Salvation history develops with the passage of time and the coming of Christ, but that plan never conflicts with the salvation paradigm and the divine promise that we find here in Genesis chapter 12. That paradigm begins with the first verse, and I would put it this way, that God elects Abram for salvation. God chooses to save Abram. Chapter 12 and verse 1 of Genesis, the Lord God had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. From God's perspective, this call marks a decisive turning point in salvation history. God chooses the family of Abram as the line through which Messiah will be born. This connects back, you will remember, to Genesis 3 and verse 15. This prophecy that one will come to crush Satan's head. This one is born through Seth, follows through the line of Noah, and through the line of Shem. And from this point forward, the call of Abram is one in a series of lenses through which all of redemptive history will forever be seen. But from Abram's perspective, that is God's perspective, as he begins to work out further this salvation purpose, from Abram's perspective, the call of God is certainly a radical proposal. Abram grew up worshiping a moon god. To leave your homeland in that day was to leave your job, your protection, your social security system. And God kicks out all of these props from under Abram who is more than 70 years of age, and he calls him to leave his nation, his clan, and his extended family. 
And according to the book of Hebrews, Abram does not even know where he is going. God says, leave, and he leaves. No idea where. Now we find nothing in this, as I put this under the category of God's electing choice of Abram, we find nothing in this that Abraham deserves. God just calls him. He chooses this family. He is born within the line of the people through whom Messiah will be born. But God chooses this individual man according to his own purposes. And he promises, verse 2, to bless Abram. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will make you a great nation. This means that Abram will father a son, although Abram is childless, chapter 11, verse 30. And it means that Abram will possess a land, although his homeland is in the rearview mirror at this point. God will bless him. God promises to prosper Abram as his child. He will give him a name. That means fame and renown. And he will be a blessing. God will pour out his favor upon others through Abram. As verse 3 indicates, God has chosen to funnel salvation history through this man. We must understand Abram to have a full sense of our own salvation in Christ. Therefore, those who oppose Abram oppose God. Those who bless Abram operate on God's side, at least on that point. God's purpose is to use Abram's descendants as a conduit through whom all peoples on the earth will be blessed. It is a spectacular, out-of-the-blue promise, an undeserved promise from the mouth of God. But for some reason, these words strangely warm Abram's heart. And he willingly leaves behind life as he knows it. In childlike faith, Abram believes God and his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 and verse 6, which we read earlier. So we have the election of God, the call of God upon Abram's life. He chooses this man. Secondly, at verse 4, we see Abram obeys God's call to faith. Remember here, we're looking at paradigm. We're looking at pattern. We're looking at how God saves, the direction that he takes in his saving purposes. And we notice that the travel party reaches Canaan. Abram obeys. Verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord God told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So Abram leaves, accompanied by anyone willing to join him, Lot, his wife, servants, flocks, according to other passages. Abram leaves no locker room, you notice in Ur. He's never going to return again. The travelers make their way north and west to the city of Haran, where Abram stops to bury his father, Terah. And then the entourage makes the thousand-mile trek to the northern border of Canaan. Verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
We have in this first stop at Shechem or Sychar in the New Testament, situated at the geographical center of the land of Palestine. This is on a narrow pass between the Mounts Ebal and Gerizim. You remember many generations later, the conquering Israelites will recite the blessings and the curses of the covenant from these two mountains following the Exodus. That is no mistake. The tree was probably a sacred site here of the Canaanites who possessed the land. You notice in verse 7 that for the first time God explains why he directs Abram to this place. The godless builders of Babel in Abram's home region had refused to disperse and they constructed a tower to the glory of their own name. Here we have Abram journeying where God says to go and he constructs an altar to the glory of God. Clear contrast between the two. His second stop comes at verse 8. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent. Abram never enjoyed a permanent dwelling place in Canaan, according to Hebrews 11. At Shechem, God talks to Abram, but here... Abram, it seems, takes the initiative and talks to God. And it connects back with chapter 4 and verse 26, where God's people assembled together for the first time, at least in recorded scripture. They assembled together to pray as a community. There was a sense that they were a distinct people within the greater people of earth. And they gathered together to worship. And Abram here in this strange land does the same. He gathers the people that are part of his extended family. And he worships God at this altar. We have a third stop in verse 9 where Abram sets out and continues toward the Negev. That is, toward that desert area in southern Palestine. The only marks Abram leaves on the land are what? I suppose there's a number of hoof prints along the way with all of his sheep, cattle, goats. But the only marks that Abram really leaves, besides those and the holes of the tent stakes that were pulled up, are altars. Places where he worshipped God in his journey. He stands for God in the land of Canaan. And we learn just from this paradigm of salvation that no one earns salvation. Never in the word of God do we have any indication that anyone has ever earned salvation by their efforts. We can please God by our efforts. We can obey God by our efforts. But we can never earn our salvation. We can never become God's people by what we do. That is left to God, who chooses his people and calls them out of the world, who opens their eyes to see what they cannot see and opens their ears to hear what they cannot hear on their own. This is how God saves. You know what the New Testament does with this passage. If you were given a simple quiz, A or B, the New Testament makes very little of this passage or the New Testament makes very much of this passage. What is it? We know if you've ever read the book of Romans, this is a crucial section of Scripture. 
Paul describes our salvation in Christ and he goes running back to the book of Genesis and develops this 12th chapter very carefully, drawing upon the faith of Abraham unto salvation. He draws from other passages as well in Genesis here and the one that was read earlier by Pastor Pratt, Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a difficult thing for us humans. But God lays out his salvation and says, I want you to trust it. It is a rope to pull you out of this hole. You're going to have to just trust the rope. He doesn't ask for us to earn our salvation. In fact, we cannot. We must trust his plan. We learn as well from this section that the elect obey. Those that God chooses to save, obey him. We are saved by faith. But it is always a faith that works, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. We are not saved by a prayer. We are not saved by signing some document. We are not saved even simply by a profession of faith. I identify with Christ. We are saved by Christ alone. But when we are saved, the kind of salvation that he gives is unto good works. We are not saved to stay in our sin. We are saved to leave it in the rearview mirror and to go to the land of promise that is ahead of us. He saves by faith and he calls to a life of obedience. This is the saving work of God. And with this we add the third idea from Abram's experience and that is his rescue from Egypt beginning at verse 10. We see that Abram's faith is tested by crisis in this new life of following God. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Crisis drives Abram from Canaan. The promises of God never come with a promise that everything is going to be easy. That is not how they come to Abram. They come with a guarantee and a promise of difficulty and hardship in a sense and Abram finds his way here in this difficult situation in Egypt because he must leave the land of promise because of this famine as he was about to enter Egypt, however, the crisis comes again, a further crisis. In verse 11, there's the crisis in Canaan. Now there's a crisis in Egypt. Verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. That's what we would typically call a good problem. But it's not for Abram at this time. Because when the Egyptians see you, verse 12, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say that you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Factoring in the different ages here, the longevity of the difference between our times, maybe Sarai is 35 years of age. But even factoring that in here, she was unusually beautiful for her age. Abram knows this is going to be a real problem because there will be people in Egypt. It seems almost as if he figures this out on his way down there, but there will be people in Egypt who are going to want to add her to their harem, and they're not going to want to take no from a stranger. 
We don't know exactly what is in Abram's head in all of this, but some have suggested that what he really wants to do is to pose as her brother until they can get out of Egypt, until things are growing again back in Canaan. And, and by posing as brother and having people entertaining him and trying to see if they can gain her hand in marriage, he'll put things off. If he comes across as husband, he knows he's going to find some poison in his stew somewhere fairly soon. So he comes up with this scheme. What's he trying to do? He's trying to avoid death. Rather than trusting the promises of God, rather than doing what is right, he takes things in his own hands and says, here, this will work. This will keep us out of trouble. That doesn't keep him out of trouble. Verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. His estimations were not too high of his wife nor were they too low of the Egyptians. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. I think this probably was a bit shocking to Abram. There will be people who want my wife. I don't know that he counted on it being Pharaoh. Pharaoh is absolute authority in Egypt. He's seen, in a sense, as a reflection of the divine realm on earth. You don't mess with Pharaoh. And so he adds Sarai to his harem. Verse 16, And he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and men servants and maid servants and camels. So Abram's net worth skyrockets, but he has lost his wife. And he and Sarai are now in a terrible situation. Yes, as he expected, he is being enriched by the Egyptians, but he hadn't counted on this, that Sarai is gone. It is at this point, while Abram's faith is tested and found wanting, that God's faithfulness is evidenced by deliverance. Verse 17 but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? In his mercy, God intervenes to rescue Abram and Sarai by judging Pharaoh. There's an important word that we find here, a, a contrast in verse 17, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh. That is an antithetical to, and she was taken into his palace. She was placed in the harem, but God acts. He inflicts serious diseases on Pharaoh so that Pharaoh gets his mind off of Sarai and begins to ask, what in the world is going on here in our court? There is some judgment from some God that has come down upon us. And he begins to inquire and ask what is going on. And somehow in all of this, the secret service of Egypt uncovers the fact that Sarai is Abram's wife. You would suspect that she maybe dropped a note somewhere to let someone know. Because all that we see here in this account is that Abram's not talking to anybody. He believes if he says a word, he's dead. So Sarai, perhaps, however it happens, someone 
whispers the truth. And though he had every intention to marry her, Pharaoh doesn't. Puts her in his harem, but there is apparently no actual consummation of the marriage or no formalization of it. And Pharaoh responds in great anger, as you might expect that he would. Verse 19, he says, Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Perhaps he would have anyway, but he's mad about this point right now because it's cost him a lot. Disease is running rampant through his court, and he doesn't like it. And so the death that Abram tried to avoid by lying now stares him in the face. Not only has he lied, he's lied to Pharaoh, and he's gotten Pharaoh into all kinds of trouble with God. But ironically, Pharaoh does not kill Abram because Pharaoh fears God. There's irony in that, isn't there? Abram doesn't fear God as he should. He doesn't trust God as he should. But Pharaoh here in this moment does. If God will punish me for doing something I don't even know is wrong, what will he do if I sin against him with a high hand and murder this man and take his wife? He's reasoning here better than some of the kings of Israel. He lets Sarai go and yields to the fact that God is protecting Abram. There is an amazing thing that happens here. This one who is like unto the gods in Egyptian thinking bows to the power of God and he lets a nomadic shepherd go. God has intervened to spare Abram. And Abram is delivered, as the middle of verse 19 says, Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way, and his wife, and everything that he had. Abram left Ur from Canaan in faith. He leaves Egypt for Canaan in shame. He's charged with wrongdoing by a heathen ruler and has proven to be anything but a blessing to the nations of Egypt. Verse 3 says that he will be a blessing to all peoples. Not this day. But despite all of Abram's feelings, he leaves Egypt in health and wealth and with his wife. The lie that he had told accomplished nothing but to jeopardize their lives and certainly the honor of his wife. But in the end, the safety and prosperity that Abram desired was delivered to him by the grace of God. As a student in the school of faith, Abram needed this lesson. He needed this valuable lesson that he could trust God in the dark. And it's going to take another failure to get this lesson learned. He's going to go right back to Egypt and do the same thing again, as is his son. But Abram's on a journey, a personal journey of faith, and he's learning something here. His faith was tested and found wanting, but he learned that you can depend upon God and his promises in the dark. He's headed to chapter 22 and the offering of Isaac. In the end, Abraham will learn the lesson. There's so much that we find here in seminal form. In the area of salvation history, we find here the foundations of our soul's redemption. 
we must take into account the promise of the land and the promise of a people to Abram. In the promise of the land, God knows as he orchestrates his saving grace that that promise of the land includes a place called Bethlehem in Judea, or what will be Judea. And he knows that it involves a hill on the southern end of this land. And on that hill, he will bring Abraham to offer Isaac on this hill of Moriah. And there someday, his king, David, will conquer that hill and plant his temple where the glory of God will descend and rule in Israel. And he knows that on this hill that the promised Messiah will die. He promises simply to Abraham this land. And he promises a people. He promises that through Abraham, the promised seed that would crush Satan's head will be born. And God repeats this promise over and over again to Abram. This will be your land. You will have a great offspring of people. And this promise continues through salvation history. Let's notice chapter 26 and verse 2 as it is applied to Isaac, the son of Abram. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 2 as we look at Isaac's account. Now notice here the connections. This is not coincidental. There's a very specific connection that is purposefully made here. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed." Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. Not because Abraham gained my favor and earned my salvation, but as the one that I chose, Abraham followed through and did what he was supposed to do, and now I give to you the same promise. This land... This people, through your body. Chapter 28, Isaac's son Jacob is born. And all would have thought that the promise would go through his brother Esau, but God chooses Jacob to bring about this promised salvation, to bring this Messiah, this deliverer, through this family line, and chooses Jacob to be the representative. Chapter 28 and verse 13 as Jacob is at Bethel and receives this vision of God, chapter 28 and verse 13. Let me just read verse 12 as we work our way there. He had a dream, 28:12, in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. So what? They are your father. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. 
Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Do you see the connections here? Abram dishonors God in Egypt, but God protects him and brings him back. Jacob is running right now from Esau, who has rights to murder him, to execute him. He has stolen his brother's position. He is running from God, but God has chosen him to keep this promise alive. We find similar connections with Joseph, like his father Abraham. Israel will journey to Egypt where she will be enriched. Remember Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. God prophesies that Israel will go down into Egypt and be there enriched. That's exactly what her father did, what the nation's father Abraham did. He went down into Egypt and he was there enriched. And like Abram, God will deliver Israel out of Egypt. As we come to the Exodus account, it hinges on God's promise of land and offspring to Abraham. I wanted to take this opportunity today to stress that point because we must remember that as we study our way through Exodus. God has promised to Abraham this land and this offspring. But to realize as well that there is a paradigm in all of this deliverance from Egypt. A major theme is God's saving, electing grace and his protecting care. He will take Israel into Egypt, they will there be enriched, and he will deliver her out of Egypt. So as we reach back to the foundations and the moorings of our salvation, we find these themes that help us understand the mind of God and appreciate more the wonder of His saving purposes. Because what, Abraham's, what has happened in Abraham's life is what must happen in ours by the grace of God. We see in Abraham's journey an unconditional election by God, a salvation by faith in the Word of God, the crucial role of God's divine promise the sanctification through obedience, God's unmerited faithfulness to His people, His providential hand through the difficulties and through the sin of His people. We see the precursor of His promise that all things work together for those who love God and are what? Are called according to His purpose. If you are in this stream, if you have been called according to the purpose of God, He issues promises to you that are as great as any promise that He's issued to Abraham. It may not be that through us all nations of the earth will be blessed, but there are promises that are profound and that are real and that we must trust in our walk of faith. In John 3 and verse 16, He says, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the promise of God. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, as we noted last week, there is no temptation but what is common to man. Nothing has seized you but what is common to others. And God is faithful. He will make a way. He will make a pass or a path 
so that you can journey through this and hold up under it. Romans 8 and verse 28, all things work together for good to those who love God. And Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. He issues to us as his people these precious promises which we need to take to the bank every day. To trust them, to know that his word is faithful and true. Like Abram, the journey for us is often marred by failure, but it is our failure that God meets with His grace. Why? It is not because we deserve it. It is because He has chosen us and given us His promises. It is because He has laid down this path of salvation and He has led us onto it. And so we gather on the Lord's Day to sing. We gather to lift up songs of praise and prayers of thanksgiving to this God who has included us in this stream. And may we go at the scriptures ever with this task, particularly as we look through the Old Testament texts which come before Christ is crucified, may we go to them with a the knowledge that they are building the foundation of our understanding of this glorious salvation in Christ. And may we, like that little Jewish girl, stand on the beaches of Normandy with tears on our face as we stand and look back at the amazing work of God that He has done and provided this path of salvation. If you are not on it, I plead with you by the mercies of God to reach out in faith and to embrace the salvation that He has offered. Christ has laid down His life to pay the penalty of sin and you are called to reach out and to embrace him in faith. You cannot work yourself there. He will have to turn the lights on for you. He will have to regenerate your soul. This is not an issue of reformation. This is an issue of transformation. You can't make it happen. But as he leads you to see his face, open up your heart in faith and reach out and join this great journey of faith. May God shine his light upon you. And for those of us who know him as Savior, let's sing. Father, as we come before you in prayer, I ask that we will sing to your glory and to your honor as we consider our salvation in Christ, what amazing grace has reached us in our need. We see in Abram our own sins and thank you for your mercies that rescue us and provide for us. And do not turn us away, though we deserve that. We thank you that you forgive. And we thank you, God, for this electing grace, though we do not fully understand it. We humbly receive it. And we ask, why me? Why us? We do not know but we sing your praises for this amazing grace. May no one come to this time of singing and prayers of repentance, this time of consideration of your truth, and pat ourselves on the back saying, what a good job we've done to earn our salvation. But I pray that we, like Abraham, would simply rejoice that there was a day when you called us into the light. And I pray that with humble hearts we might rejoice in your amazing grace. Help us, God, as we sing, to bring glory to your name, to not treat this lightly, 
but to know the cost of this grace. To know as we stand before the cross that all of history was leading to that point and all of history hinges on it. We thank you for what Jesus has done. We stand in awe of this long story and rejoice that we have the privilege to be part of it. Hear our prayers of thanks, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen.